Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or a single cask from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, uh, we think we're in episode 77, if I'm counting correct, which is insane. Never thought you'd get this high. But today, we are going back over to Western Pennsylvania, and I'm thrilled to, to welcome, excuse me, Jim Hoff from Liberty Pole Spirits and also known as Mango Creek Distillers, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Jim, welcome. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. It's an honor. Appreciate it. I'm happy to have you on. So, yeah, let's jump right in uh, with the Liberty Pole versus Mingo Creek. Which is which is which, and where should we divide it up? So, think of uh, Budweiser and Anheuser Busch. Uh, it's kind of the best way to really to really think about what what we've got going on here. Um, Mingo Creek Craft Distillers. You know, we always had a. Uh, we always had a, um, you know, a, an image and a thought of honoring the, you know, the history of the Whiskey Rebellion in, in Western Pennsylvania. And um, when we incorporated, we, we actually formed our LLC in uh, January of 2015, which was about um, 16, 17 months before we opened our doors. And at that point, we had yet to really learn or discover what Liberty Poles were and, 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 um, but we knew the Mingo Creek Society was the name of the kind of the most, um, you know, the, the farmer distillers of Western Pennsylvania who were who were the most against the whiskey rebellion or the whiskey tax. So 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 we, we formed our LLC uh, as the Mingo Creek Craft Distillers, honoring the Mingo Creek Society. As we got closer to opening, um, we did more research and and. We found, you know, this this notion of a liberty pole, which which was just to us really fitting. You know, it was the symbol of opposition to that excise tax. Um, it, it's a symbol that goes back to ancient Greek times, but it was very, you know, very popular during colonial America. And we just thought that resonated. That was easier to remember. Uh, it just had a better, you know, kind of a brand pop to us. So so we decided to create a brand. Um, under Mingo Creek Craft Distillers, uh, and our brand is Liberty Pole. So, so really, it's corporate entity Mingo Creek Craft Distillers. You know, those guys that they pay the taxes, which is ironic, given you know, given our uh, you know, given our honoring of the uh, the Whiskey Rebellion guys. And Liberty Pole is our brand, and that and that's what we you know want to be known as. And and um, you know, it's just kind of a, a you know, just a circumstances that that Mingo Creek uh, craft distillers is, you know, is so, um, so out there these days. Hindsight's 2020. We, we, you know, we wish we would have, uh, thought of Liberty Poles when we incorporated the name, but. If you got it all right at the beginning, there wouldn't be much to be interesting over the years, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, I was mentioning, but just before we started, you know, I, one of the episodes that I listened to in preparation for this was you did a great episode with Alan Bishop and Christy Atkinson on distillers talk in November. And when you were getting into the colonial history, one of the things you pointed out was kind of everything related to the whiskey rebellion. It seems like, especially in Pennsylvania, 
is trademarked already. Yes. 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 Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm also curious just uh, kind of where you came about the, the Liberty Pole thing, because um, the, the idea of the word of liberty in its own, its own entity, you've got uh, the other half of the state, you've got, you know, New Liberty Distillers over there, you've got um, a couple of brewers, of course, using the term liberty, it's kind of all over um, right. the identity of Pennsylvania almost. Um, but Liberty Poles and, of course, Whiskey Rebellion is more where you guys are in, in Washington, Pennsylvania. Right. So, ha- right. so how do you kind of come across that uh, in the histories? You know what, David, you know, we, we, we were consumed with, with books um, about the Whiskey Rebellion and, and, and Liberty Poles just kept popping up. You know, every, every book that we would read would talk about, um, you know, the erection of Liberty Poles to protest the tax. And, you know, one of the seminal events in the Whiskey Rebellion was, the raising of a Liberty Pole in Washington, Pennsylvania, which back then was known as Bassett Town. But there were 400 people that showed up in, in what's now Washington to erect this Liberty Pole. And that was one of the final kind of straws that um, that President Washington and Alexander Hamilton were really monitoring that that this situation in Western Pennsylvania was kind of spiraling out of control. Uh, and, and, you know, just the more we read about Liberty Poles, just the, the more in love we fell with that concept. And, and, and you know, we have a, we have a, a colonial woman carrying a Liberty Pole uh, on our label. And, um, you know, it's always been a part of our label and it always will. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, it, it really fits our story. And, and we like to say that, you know, that the Liberty Pole is proudly displayed on every bottle of, of spirits that, that leaves our distillery. I mean, it certainly makes, it catches the eye for sure, uh, which I can definitely appreciate. So the Whiskey Rebellion in general, I, I'll admit to being uh, behind on my own reading on that. Um, you can um, thank Professor Schrod, who... Uh, just recorded a couple of weeks ago, uh, his history of prohibition, uh, which took quite a bit of my time, very worth it, but uh, that took up some of my reading time. But with, with the Whiskey Rebellion, what I wanted to kind of talk to you about and ask you about was there's something about how it happened in Western Pennsylvania. Like, just to, to put it bluntly, that of course, Western Pennsylvania was not the only place that people were pissed off about this whiskey tax. I'm sure distillers in New York, New Jersey, from you know DC, all of this were pissed off as well. And yet the rebellion itself, as we know it, really happened around where you guys are. Right. And what do you think led to it happening there as opposed to anywhere else? <clears throat> you know, we, we think it's actually pretty, pretty simple in the sense that Pittsburgh um, kind of had one of the only um, efforts to collect that tax on the Western frontier. Um, mm-hmm. uh, John Neville, um, General Neville was, uh, was a Pittsburgh resident. He was a, a friend of uh, President Washington's. They served together uh, in the military. Um, and and Neville, was a, uh, Neville was the tax collector in Pittsburgh. And he was actively trying to collect that 
excise tax. Um, he was, you know, going out with um, with with federal marshals and serving writs of arrest. And, um, you know, the other places on the Western frontier didn't really have that level of, um, you know, the, the, the law trying to collect those taxes as Pittsburgh did. And, you know, the thing about General Neville that is really ironic is that, you know, besides being a personal, um, having a personal relationship with President Washington, um, he was also a distiller and he was a big distiller and he was a very wealthy distiller. Uh, back in those days, the army, the militia was paid with rations of whiskey. Um, and, you know, I'll give you two guesses who had the, the contract to supply the army with whiskey. Um, it was General Neville. And, um, you know, so so just the, the you know, the the fact that this very wealthy um, individual, a landowner, um, distiller, was trying to collect taxes off of you know, really dirt poor uh, farmers who were only distilling to preserve what little grain they had left over after, you know, after they fed themselves and they traded that grain for whatever else they could trade it for. Um, you know, they made whiskey because once you turn that grain into whiskey, it lasts forever. Grain will mold, grain will, you know, go bad, but if you turn it into whiskey, so, so these, these folks weren't, you know, they weren't distilling as a business. They weren't distilling to get hammered. Um, they were distilling to preserve, you know, the effort that they put into their their farming. And, and you know, it was a form of currency on the frontier. Uh, there were no banks. There were no roads. There were very, very few, if any, government services here in Western Pennsylvania. And whiskey, you know, whiskey was a currency. Uh, whiskey was bartered for goods and services. And so, you know, it, it was a really unfair tax. And these folks, you know, these folks, had, they were mainly Scots-Irish and, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm Scots-Irish myself and, you know, we're very stubborn people. And, um, you know, they, 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 most of them had fought in the, in the Revolutionary War and, you know, fought for independence. And, um, you know, it just didn't sit well with them uh, that, that they were being taxed. Uh, it was why it was why we fought for independence. You know, we wanted to escape that taxation without representation. And the farmers here had no protection. They had no protection from the Native Americans. They had no roads. They had no banks. They had no government services. So, you know, I can kind of see their their point and 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 why they rebelled. And and I think that Western Pennsylvania is so associated with that part of history because you know we actually had a tax collector trying to, you know get that tax money. And as you point out at that point in, in American history, that was the frontier, the Ohio river, the, you know, Kentucky's just becoming a state out of, carved out of Virginia. So these are, yeah, this is really at that point, what we think of as the wild West. It's, it's a lot closer. And um, I think it's worth doubling up to what you said that it's not, it wasn't commercial distilling. You know, we're not talking, even the volumes of Elijah Craig or because that would have been a couple of years later or, or anything like that. It was really, you're preserving the grain. So you don't lose right. out on what you've done yep. um, and trying to enforce a monetary value on a barter system, which doesn't, doesn't work today. It doesn't, didn't work then clearly. Right. So, but it, it has fascinated me. I want to read more about it and just um, understand more about the time period. Um, because I think we, 
tend to think of the Whiskey Rebellion, it's it's of course the first and I think the only time uh, federal troops are sent against their own citizens. It's this first tax, then it's repealed a couple of years later. We don't have another one until the Civil War. So, right. um, but it's really an important history it, lesson. It, it is. You know, it's the first uh, first time that a presidential pardon was ever used. Uh, uh, there were two uh, two rebels that were charged with treason and sentenced to hang, and um, uh, they were eventually pardoned by by President Washington. Um, you know, it, it's it's really the reason that the the national road was um, was built, right? If you were mm-hmm. if you were um, charged with a you know a federal crime, uh, you had to march back to Philadelphia, which was the capital. And you know if you were a farmer and you had to leave your family for the five month trip to face federal charges, um, you know the national road made that a little bit more easy. But also the establishment of the circuit court system uh, was a direct result of the the uh, whiskey rebellion you know the the just the 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 hardships that people faced back then to face federal charges um you know it resulted in that whole circuit court uh system being set up and something i just thought of is that the more i talk to people like you distillers with and distilleries with historical roots um here and elsewhere but especially here in the u.s Parts of American history that particularly have to do with alcohol, like the Whiskey Rebellion, like excise taxes, even prohibition to a great extent. Um, we don't really learn about that in school. No. And for some reason, it just clicked that it's probably because it's talking about whiskey in school and it's not really the, the focus. But And maybe that's just conjecture, but I'm, it's going to be my conjecture. Um, but it's so... Again, the more I talk to historical, historically related distilleries, the more I find it's important to American history, this idea of distillation, the drinking culture that comes along with it, paying the army in rations of, of first rum and then uh, whiskey. It's an integral part of our history that we really need to to teach because it informs so much else. Yep. Uh, Agreed. Anyway, that's, sorry, that's my soapbox on that. <laughs> uh, so jumping back to... Uh, to Liberty Pole in particular. I have a couple of uh, technical questions, of course, you know me. Um, but I wanted to first start with uh, going back to your relationship with Bill Owens. Um, and, you know, talking a little bit more about his influence on, on how the distillery came to be and you starting in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. I had a um, I had a, a ten gallon backyard hobby still that um, that I think I got back in the early two thousands maybe two thousand five or two thousand six and um, you know I really I really loved the art of distilling and and you know I had no background I don't have a a moonshining uncle or anything like that it's just you know I had a had a real interest in it and you know just kind of was looking to learn as much as I could and the more the more I I got into it the more I started thinking about legal you know craft distilling craft distilling in 2006 7 was really very uh in its infancy and um you know I had stumbled upon the American Distilling Institute and so um I think right around that time I I reached out to Bill and just said, Hey, you know, 
I'm thinking about this. Uh, you know, I've been a hobby distiller for a couple of years now. Um, I really enjoy the craft. You know, what you know? Can you do you have any any advice? And and he said, Oh, you're in you're in Washington, Pennsylvania. If you do anything other than whiskey, you know, it, it you shouldn't. I mean, you you have to do whiskey. You're in Washington, Pennsylvania. You have to do whiskey. Um, and you know that that really was was a light bulb because that was what I was making anyways. But I think you know I think you know a lot of craft distillers do start off with you know a, a spectrum of products, and and I think that was my inclination that you know you you, know, you, know, you you've got to you've got to keep the lights on with vodka or or, or gins or things like that. Um, but you know, Bill really. Bill really hit home when he when he told us that you know we should really do whiskey and um, you know we kind of we kind of never forgot that and even though we really didn't start the business for another seven or eight years after that you know I never forgot his his advice and when we put up the business plan together um, we decided to make that and and it was a difficult choice to just focus on whiskey and that's all we do. Well, that was great advice, you know, from Bill, and and I I, I appreciate it. And I, I tell him that every time I see him uh, at a conference, we have his picture hanging um, in our distillery. Uh, he came to visit us when we were kind of doing the build out. And um, Bill, you know, I, I don't know, David, if you're if you're a you know Pittsburgh Steeler fan, but the 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 um, the Steelers were owned for many years by and they still are owned by the Rooney family but Art Rooney senior um, is a legendary character here in Pittsburgh and Bill Owens has an uncanny resemblance to Art Rooney and this mm -hmm. picture that we have hanging in our hallway because everybody that comes into the distillery is a Steeler fan because we're in you know Washington and Pittsburgh they want to know why Art Rooney Art Rooney's picture is hanging in our in our hall. And, you know, a couple of times I've just said, oh, he's, he was a whiskey fan, but rather than trying to explain to them who Bill Owens was, but. It's why not? Why not? Yeah. So with Bill helping out like that to, and I, I mean, I can't disagree with him. The, you got to do whiskey where you're at, even if you had done other things, you got to do whiskey. Right. Um, so in the, years since then since you've gotten off the ground and been producing what does he think about you using peat i we've not talked to him about that so yeah purposefully I, I or accidentally <laughs> i think he'd approve okay okay um of course you know it's worth knowing so you have a peated rye um a peated bourbon as right. well right um, that both of them I got to try. Uh, there are going to be reviews to come out and tasting notes, of course, with with this episode. Both definitely worth trying. There, I think I like. Oddly enough, I think by by themselves, I liked the unpeated rye better. But when the peat was added in, I actually liked the peated bourbon better than the peated rye. Okay, just my which is weird. I I thought it was going to be the opposite. So, um, but still, they're both quite good and as uh you point out there are very few people doing peated american whiskeys let alone specifically a peated bourbon right right so you know the obvious comparison i know alan brought it up 
on on Siller's talk, first one people are going to compare to is Kings County, right, with the right. Peter Bourbon. Um, and I, you know, I love Colin at Kings County. I like their Peter Bourbon as well. Uh, but uh, to your knowledge, you know, are there others also doing Peter Bourbon that we should take a look at? More and more. Um, I, I know that um, there's a distillery in in Detroit called Two James that that has a peated bourbon um i've seen at least one or two others but the names escape me right now but but two james is is the you know kind of the one that i've seen and and i think they have you know two james has a you know a, a decent size distribution footprint in the midwest so i a, a friend of mine actually brought me a, bo- a bottle of their of their uh, peated bourbon uh, from, you know, some some liquor store in the Midwest uh, outside of Detroit, and and we're all different. I've tasted Kings County, and I, you know, I tasted two James, and obviously I taste ours. And you know, I mean, it, it's 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 really it's really interesting to see the the different kind of flavor profiles that that we all have. I mean, they're all very different, um, but but you know, they're all very good. The, the peak coming into, or the peak coming into your whiskeys and into the Liberty Pole banner, as it were, was because of your wife. Correct. Correct. So, so this, this goes back to my, um, you know, to my hobby distilling days. And, you know, I was, I'm an, I'm an American whiskey, Irish whiskey. I love Irish whiskey, but I've never been you know, a scotch uh, lover. Um, and so I was making bourbon and rye and I was triple distilling things and the style of a, of an Irish whiskey. And, and one day my wife just said to me, why don't you ever make anything that, that I like, you know, and, and she loves the Isla, Isla scotches. So, um, you can only, um, get peated malt as a hobbyist at brewery supply stores, which is where I was getting my malt, but because, Peated malt is 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 something that you know less is more in a beer. You can only get it in very small quantities. So I just did the math, and um, you know I just couldn't I couldn't justify buying enough quarter pound bags of peated malt to make a hundred percent peated malt whiskey. So um, I had also had um, Derek Bell is the founder of Corsair. Um, he, he had put out a kind of a really awesome book back then on, um, you know, kind of whiskey recipes and whiskey ideas. And, and he had in there, um, you know, kind of a, a peated American whiskey that, that combined, um, you know, peat, peated malt with other grains. And that's where I got the idea to, you know, to kind of make that in my home still. And, um, you know, it, it was it was very, it was delicious. And it was really the, the trigger that kind of gave me and, and my wife and family kind of the, the confidence that, you know, maybe we did have something that we could really leverage into, you know, a brand and a business, because I think you need that hook. You need something. There's so many bourbons out there that, you know, having that peated bourbon uh, in the portfolio, while, while it's not our biggest seller and it's very polarizing, you know, it, it does get you that, oh, 
wow, what's this peated bourbon? You know, it gets people in and, and, you know, and then they'll try the rye or they'll try the bourbon and they may love the peated bourbon. They may hate it, but you know, it is, it is that novelty that, that really gets people. And I think that's what craft distilling is all about, right? We have to, we have to have that unique product. We have to use heritage grains or we have to make a peated whiskey or we have to do something that separates us from you know the maker's mark and the Jim Beams those guys make fantastic whiskeys um, they make them a lot cheaper than we can make them uh, but yet they could not you know they could not pull off a peated bourbon in, a, in an experimental batch at the size of their process they just couldn't do it and so so that's what really I think is craft distillers a little bit of an advantage in the market these days kind of that nimbleness you know makers has that 46 program maybe uh i think their last entry was to add the french mendiant stave maybe they should add like you know a quarter cast stave from the or go. something in there there you go yeah they they trade barrels all the time so yeah you know, yeah LaFleur, and, and there's all like make it mark <laughs> there's some distillers out there that do that 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 finish in isla casks and it's a different, it's a different kind of peated expression, but you know, yeah, there's so much, so many neat things you can do. Well, so that's my, that was my next question was, so, uh, Ellen, I say her name is, uh, since she liked the peach, she pushed you to include it, to try it out. Was she more of an Isla style or, you know, what, what kind of peat profile was she looking for when, when first brought it up so ellen to to this day our the peated bourbon is her favorite liberty pole uh expression she she still loves pete um ellen still um ellen still gravitates to the the heavier peated islas i mean um i just got her uh an octomore for for christmas so um, she was very pleased at that. So the you know for for Ellen the peatier the better. She she really does. There's a group there's a group here in Pittsburgh. Um, they call themselves Boggers United, and they have they have shares once a month. And um, you know it it is just Pete City, and I go with her to those. And a couple of the guys know I'm not a real Pete lover, so they'll bring they'll bring me a bourbon or a rye to, to sample, but um she's she's all in the uh, peatier the better but the reason i asked too is because the let's see I believe it, I believe it was also the episode of distillers talk you said the peat profile that you have now is kind of is more of a highland uh scottish peat so not super medicinal not that maritimey right a um, little lighter right. right so is that kind of the compromise between the two <laughs> You know, I wouldn't even say it was a compromise. I would say it was just, you know, it was what's available. Um, you know, we looked and, you know, Isla, um, I, we could not find Isla peat anywhere on the market. I think I think most of that peat is is harvested and, and kept on the islands. Um, you know, we were able to get um, a peated malt from from Inverness uh, in the highlands. And, um, you know, it, it's basically what was available to us, but it worked out quite well, it worked out quite well. No, for sure. It, it, it fits well. It matches well with it. Um, and I mean, when you say you're getting heavily peated, you're going to 60 PPMs, 
Yeah. Which is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we get the heavily no peated <laughs> and, and, and it's actually, you know, it's actually about um, 30, 30% of, of the mash bill, uh, maybe a little over about 31% of the mash bill. So, you know, so it really makes its presence known. Uh, you, you know, you're drinking a peated whiskey, but it's not, it's not a hundred percent. It's not an Isla it's not a scotch peat. I mean, it's not a single malt, uh, all peat. It is, um, you know, it, it's 30% um, heavily peated, uh, 60% corn or rye, depending on whether we're making the peated bourbon or the peated rye. But yeah, definitely, it, it, it's definitely noticeable. Yeah, when I, I actually went back to retaste it, retaste the, the products after trying a couple of newer peats that i hadn't had before so and one of them uh which i think fits very well with this was from schlieve league in donegal in ireland and uh you know that that kind of peat was number one the peat profile was different it, it was closer to a highland than to an isla despite it being on the coast um but they also don't do 100 percent. it's a portion of the blend mm-hmm. and when i went back and tried that their Midnight Silky, which is their um, most peated version, reminded me to go back to Liberty Pole because the profiles uh, and the proportion of peat in there matched up very well. Now, you know, they're, they're using all, all barley. It's not multiple grains, but still the idea of it being just a portion of the mash bill rather than the whole thing. And I think, you know, I, I know that we've been told that 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 our our peated whiskeys have actually been a little bit of a gateway uh, whiskey to people that wanted to to try to learn to like peated whiskeys. Um, mm-hmm. But because it's you know, it's just a, a portion of the blend um, or portion mm-hmm. of the mash bill, you know, it's a little bit more subtle, but, you know, it's it's let people kind of get used to that that um profile and and move on to you know full single malts and um you know we've turned a few people into into peat uh peat lovers yeah it's i agree it's a it's a great way to get into it the same way i mean i got into it through highland park originally again different different idea but the Mm -hmm. the difference in peat and the lighter style of it like i just i don't get the people i still get the people who start off with Lafroig and and like that's like oh yeah i love this stuff right off the bat i just don't yeah. get it no but to each their own yep so with the p let me just make sure i didn't miss anything on that one um no perfect so you have peated malt next step in the process and of course you have the other grains as well we'll get to those in a second but next step in the process fermentation distillation um now i'm going to throw the uh fermentation part for the most part um definitely listen to you know alan's episode uh with distillers talk um where jim was the guest i don't want to duplicate alan's stuff he speaks about some things better than i do so i'll leave that to them but i did want to jump back to the idea that you uh had been kind of playing with yeasts and at one point you're using exclusively American ale yeast and now using some of uh, Pat Heist's yeast from Firm Solutions. Um, so where are you now with that? And what's the plan around look like? You know, we, 
we, we've kind of settled in on on firm solutions. Um, we, we love we love that uh, we love that that yeast we get from from Pat uh, from Farm Solutions. Um, man, I wish I I wish I could remember the the yeast um, the actual name of of the yeast. We've tried a couple of their of their whiskey yeast, but yeah, we, we've settled in on on Farm Solutions yeast. We you know, we, we just love the flavor um, that it creates. We love the, you know, we love the, uh, you know, the attenuation. Um, it, it's just, Pat's a great, Pat's a smart guy and, and Wilderness Trail has, you know, has, has taken off. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, kind of using the, and, and they've always said they're using the same yeast at Wilderness Trail that they're selling out of Firm Solutions. So, um the one thing that we do like to do uh, is we do a, a, you know, for the industry, I think it's a fairly long fermentation. You know, we do a six day fermentation. Um, we, you know, we like those secondary fermentation um, uh, things that go on, you know, in, in days four five and six, um, you know, we, we get those, you know, we get a little bit of lactose creation. You know, there's a lot of wild yeast we have in our in our distillery. It's it's just something that you know we don't have we don't have the corporate uh, overlords. You know, kind of saying, hey, you got to empty that fermenter after you know 48 hours, 72 hours, and fill it up again. You know, we can kind of control um, what our production schedule is, and that really gives us the ability to you know, kind of extend those fermentation times out a little bit. I mean, the, the six day 144 hour fermentation is quite long, especially in U S distillation. Yes. It, uh, is. It, it was, it was notably long. And like you said, you got the secondary, that malolactic fermentation kicking off. Um, I'm curious though, with the switch from, from the American ale yeast to firm solutions yeast, undoubtedly there's going to be some flavor change there. Uh, just by, they're, they're, by nature of it being slightly different yeast. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'm curious what you kind of foresee as the uh, the changes to the profile and, and how those changes are going to work with, you know, for example, the peat, but just in general. You know, the, the, the changes were for the better. Uh, let, me, let me put it that way. We, we like we the flavor profiles that we were getting out of Firm Solutions. Uh, we've been using it now for, you know, probably three years. So, so we're actually getting, you know, finished product out of, out of barrels that, that was fermented with Firm Solutions. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, it, with, with any, with any change we make, David, you know, we, we evaluate it. And, and if it's, if it's a change that, you know, improves the process, improves the flavor profile, um, you know, is more cost efficient. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of variables that go into, you know, kind of making a change to the process. Um, but yeah, it was a, we had a unanimous um, decision that, that we really liked uh, the firm solutions product. And, and, Again, no, I don't. I know you didn't take it this way, but no means to insinuate that it wouldn't have been a good. Oh a good yeah, move no. to make. Yeah, but but I, it's, it's what's a big change? It's, it's, right, it's, it's a big a, change. It's a it's a big change. It's a you know foundational you know kind of building block of of your whiskey uh, is the yeast. But um, yeah, we you know we we definitely had a little period of 
you know, using both and comparing and, um, you know, tasting the white dog and then tasting it at, you know, six months and a year. And, and, um, you know, we, we could sort of determine that it was, it was going in the direction that we wanted it to go with, with firm solutions and, and just, you know, kind of made the move. And we, and we did the same thing with barrels too, right? We, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a very big change too. And we had a, you know, we had a longtime barrel supplier and, and, um, you know, we, 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 we started evaluating a secondary one and, you know, kind of filled them side by side for, for over a year. And, you know, I mean, any change is, is scary, um, but, you know, you have to do it in, in, in phases and evaluate uh, what's going on as you're moving through the phases. And uh, we'll, uh, time permitting, I'm sure we'll get to the, the barrels too, because that's from West Virginia Barrel, Great Barrel Co. Correct. New, Correct. And uh, you got to talk about that Appalachian Oak instead of the Ozarks. Um, so just, it sounds like I'm rushing through, but there's, there really is so much to talk about with, with Liberty Pole. And I love that about you guys. Um, jumping ahead a little bit to the stills. I was fortunate uh, in that you shared with me some of the Harold's barrels, hmm. um, which was fortunately and unfortunately my favorite, I think of everything that was shared with me. Um, I say, unfortunately listeners, because Harold, the old still is no longer with Liberty pole. It does have a second life, but it's no longer with Liberty pole. Um, so Harold, just fill us in. It was your grandfather's name? My dad. My oh, dad. Yeah, sorry, your dad. Yep. Your yep. dad's name. And so your dad's name. And uh, the the first thing that came to mind when I heard that was, I mean, name is still whatever you want, but it was the first still I can remember that was named and named for a man. Because uh, usually... It's, you know, it's almost always a woman or a muse or, you know, yeah. something like that, like a ship, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you have any kind of superstition about, oh, I don't know if we could use a man's name on a still or anything like that? So the only superstition we, we ever heard was, was, again, before we started the distillery doing our due diligence and visiting distilleries. And I wish I could remember who told me this, but um, some distillery owner somewhere said, Jim, name your still. He said, you can name it whatever, but, you know, if you ever go to a distillery, the first question you should ask on a tour is what's your still's name? And if they don't have a name, don't trust them. <laughs> so, so we, you know, we kind of decided early on that we were going to name these stills. And, um, you know, my, my Ellen's father, my wife's father uh, was a chemistry teacher. And so our original, our original um, setup was, was a, a 300 gallon production still pot still that that we named Harold and and that was after my dad and you know we kind of thought that um you know my dad was a my dad worked in the steel industry and my dad I never saw him drink anything harder than a Catawba pink on New Year's Eve but um when he passed away my mom said well who's gonna take all all your dad's whiskey and here he had a closet full of whiskey and um it turns out it was all vendor gifts 
you know, if, if you ever watch Mad Men, you know that, you know, that at that time in the 60s, it, whiskey was king and lots of vendor gifts. So my dad would just bring it home and stick it in a closet. And um, so we thought, you know, naming the still after Harold would be fitting, you know, the analogy kind of worked, right? The still gives us a lot of whiskey and it never drinks it. But my wife's father, um, his name was Howard, right? And, and Howard was a chemistry teacher. And our initial, our initial setup had a, a 30 gallon um, research still. And we used that to kind of fine tune a lot of the, the trial whiskeys that we were thinking about making. And hey, what better name for a research still than Howard, um, who was a chemistry teacher. So you had Harold and Howard. I mean, it, you know, you think we'd make that up, but that those were actually, you know, my father and my wife's father's name. So, you know, it just fit really perfectly. And Harold retired. He's now at Golden Beaver Distillery in Chico, California, uh, making some really good rice whiskey. So I see his picture on social media all the time and, you know, happy he's still uh, chugging along. Yeah, Chris uh, is... Chris Koenig is quite prolific on social media with in a, in a good way. If he's listening, yes. I mean that in a good way. Uh, and it's good to see that the still has a second life and is still being, still being used. Yeah. Yeah. And so Harold was 300 gallon and now you've got a uh, 600 gallon. Correct. And, and, and we just call him big Harold. So big he's Harold. still Harold, but, but he's big Harold. There it is. Uh, did that second one also come from Trident Stills? No, that one came from Specific Mechanical. Um, they're located in Victoria, British Columbia. Um, the 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 story there is that you know we love Trident, we love Jesse, um, but we you know my sons my sons who do the distilling um, they're mechanical engineers and they're you know they're very. You know, they're very regimented. And um, when we were considering the expansion, the upsize, you know, we started thinking about, you know, vapor flow and copper contact and, you know, how much copper contact is there in the whiskey head and um, mm -hmm. Trident, you know, they, they would give us a 600 gallon pot, but the head wasn't upsized. You know, it was the same size head that we had in our 300 mm -hmm. gallon still. We just felt like, you know, based on the, you know, the mechanics and the vapor flow of, of a bigger still, we needed a lot bigger um, whiskey helmet. So we love the flavor profile that we got out of our 300 gallon still. So, so we kind of designed the dimensions of what we thought we needed uh, in a, you know, in a 600 gallon still, it's very similar shaped whiskey helmet to what we had on our Trident. We put it out to a few places and and specific mechanical said, sure, we can, we can fabricate that for you. So they, um, they, they put together and it's been, you know, it's been awesome. And it, you know, we really didn't, we really didn't detect any very major noticeable flavor changes uh, from the 300 to the 600 gallons. So, and I think, you know, a lot of it is due to, you know, basically being able to replicate you know, the dimensions um, of, of our smaller still in a larger format. Right, right. I mean, that makes total sense. You don't want to lose the copper contact that you had gotten. Uh, you want to make sure that the, even on a bigger still, like I think of it as a bigger barrel in many ways, you know, same, mm -hmm. you can put the same liquid in it, but it's not going to have the same 
surface area contact. Correct. So making sure you get all that in there. I mean, it, it, it makes sense. Completely makes sense. Um, and I still have yet to have a still maker on here. Oh, I you should like I need to have one. Yeah, absolutely. I've had, I've had a Cooper Ridge and a half. I count yep. Greg Snyder as half a Cooper Ridge because he yep. ran the Cooper Ridges. Uh, but I need to get a still maker on here because from, you know, from their perspective too, you guys were unique. You had, you know, a still to work off of, and you also had sons who were mechanical engineers. You could work that out. Not everyone has that. Uh, so not everyone can calculate the amount of square footage or, you know, square inches within the still and the copper contact that you would need to replicate. So I'd love to hear from the other side too. Right. With, so with that being said, how, let's see. I guess I should ask how, so just a quick note, why, um, why or how did Chris at Golden Beaver end up with Harold? Yeah, from the, uh, from the ADI um, um, for sale by, uh, you know, by, by distillers uh, forum. You know, we just, when we knew we were expanding, we, we put it on, uh, on the ADI uh, for sale site and, and Chris reached out and, you know, I give him all the credit in the world. He, he got a friend, he brought his dog, he hooked up a flatbed and drove across country to, to Washington, Pennsylvania, um, loaded up, drove back to Chico, California. I think it was the longest kind of two weeks of his life, but um, yeah. I, I know he made a couple stops. He kind of optimized his trip. He, he picked up a few other pieces of equipment on the way, but yeah, it was all through the ADI uh, for sale forums. Good. Shouldn't go to waste. If it's good, yeah. if it's good quality. Shouldn't go to waste. Yep. And now I'm going to have to have Chris on to see, you know, how does the rice whiskey being made with Harold compare with the grain, the, uh, I shouldn't say the grain, the, barley wheat corn or not rice grain <laughs> golden beaver and liberty pole are forever friends and um you know we we manage to trade uh whiskey a couple times a year so so he's um you know he's tasting our stuff we're tasting his stuff he's um uh, i'm proud to have harold you know working for for chris and and he's putting out great stuff fantastic fantastic so Next step of the process. Let's go on to those barrels. Yeah. Yeah. So West Virginia, um, Great Barrel Co. There, there are a couple of cooperages that are well known in the industry, of course, ISC, Kelvin. Um, some that are a little bit lesser known, like Barrel Mill in Minnesota, Adirondack. Um, for me at least, I hadn't heard of West Virginia Great Barrel Co. before uh before I guess about four or five months ago. Oddly enough, not from Liberty Pole, but when um, Bardstown Bourbon did their collaboration with them, right. the infrared cherry oak. Right. And I was, I'll be honest, I wasn't a huge fan of that product, but the, um, <laughs> but the difference to me was really apparent in terms of the wood. And so, you know, how did that relationship come about with, uh, you said you kind of considered a couple of cooperages, you'd moved back and forth or, you know, done two or three at the same time 
to test them out. How do you end up with West Virginia Great Barrel? It's a brand new year, the perfect time for a new whiskey experience. This January, my new experience is at Loch Lee Distillery. Sitting on the lowland coast of Scotland, Loch Lee is a relatively new distillery with some iconic names behind it. Set up by Malcolm Rennie, and now overseen by John Campbell, Loch Lee sits on a farm once tilled by the patron saint of everything Scottish himself, Robert Burns. Loch Lee's first release, the sewing edition First Crop, was one of my top new whiskies of 2022 and one of the best first releases of the year. At the end of 2022, I picked up the newer Our Barley and Harvest Edition releases in advance of my own interview with John Campbell, and both were worthy follow-ups. Each built on the clean, barley-forward, and mildly lowland style of the sewing edition by layering in multiple cask finishes. Each comes in a patterned glass bottle, evoking the barley where all of this starts. Keep an eye out for early 2023. Their Fallow edition is set to hit shelves in Q1, and I, for one, can't wait. The third in the annual series of limited seasonal bottlings, Loch Lee Fallow Edition First Crop reflects the season of autumn on the farm, when the fields are left fallow to rest after a busy harvest. This will be the first Loch Lee release to be matured solely in 100% first fill Oloroso sherry butts. As always, it is non-show filtered with no coloring. It comes with a beautiful lavender label to match the rich colors of the previous seasonal bottlings. A big thank you to Impex Beverages, for being the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor, and cheers to you all in a new year. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. For the holiday season, December, January, we've got even more bottles than usual available to try and available to buy. If you are a U.S.-based listener, there are at least 12 casks just for this month's release, plus additional ones coming out. If you are a U.K. listener or an EU listener, there are over 30, a ridiculous number of bottles that you can try and get your hands on. Remember to use code WRP at checkout to get 25% off your annual membership. So so they they reached out to us, one of their sales guys, very early on when they were just starting up and um you know the, their 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 location the where they source their wood um really appealed to us you know it, it is appalachian oak they're sourcing they're sourcing wood from west virginia and pennsylvania and you know kind of appalachia as opposed to you know northern minnesota um missouri not not that there's anything wrong there's great whiskey made in wood from those from those areas but but we really like the you know the the locality we we like that 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 localness all right we 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 want to do as much local as we can so the fact that you know a lot of these barrels would contain wood sourced from pennsylvania um really appealed to us so you know so we said yeah we'll we'll you know, we'll bring you guys on and we'll, you know, we'll kind of evaluate um, alongside of our current barrel vendor and, and see how that goes. And we, you know, we kind of kept giving them more and more allocation to the point where, um, you know, we were 50-50 with, with our other barrel supplier. And um, as, as the whiskey aged and, you know, we were able to compare, you know, barrels from to, you know, from them and the, the other barrel supplier at, at a year and a year and a half old, 
Um, we, we really liked the, the direction that the whiskey was, was headed. Um, and so uh, we switched 100% of our um, barrels to, to those guys a few years ago. And, um, you know, they, they, have a, they have a really great story in terms of their, um, you know, their business and, and what they've done for the community, which we really liked. Um, uh, there was a really devastating flood in Southern West Virginia a couple of years ago. Um, uh, it, it, and it was in an area near the Greenbrier, which is a very wealthy five-star resort. And, um, you know, so, so the flood wiped out, basically wiped out the town. And so a few of the, um, you know, the, the members of Greenbrier saw that and, and they wanted to bring this town back to life. And they realized that, you know, they could build a world-class cooperage, um, employ a lot of the people that had lost jobs from the flood. And, you know, the barrels were, were you know, in, in short supply and there was a, a great market for them. So they invested in this really state-of-the-art cooperage um they make you know i think i think they make you know industry leading leak rates i mean that they, 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 they have a very solid barrel they they do an infrared toasting that you can dial in um you can dial in a toast uh you know to just incredible specificity specificity um uh, and, and, you know, we, we just like them and we, they're closer. Their delivery is, is, um, you know, is a little less costly than, than shipping from, from the Midwest. So yeah, they, they've been a great partner. Um, we're fortunate that, you know, that we're, we buy enough barrels from them that, you know, we've been able to maintain the business. I know barrels have gotten really, really difficult to get and, and they've had to cut back on some of their relationships, but we've been able to keep our relationship with them and hopefully we're going to continue to grow uh, and buy more barrels from them but yeah they make a great barrel and i can't can't recommend them highly enough it's a it's a glowing review for sure and i i'm it's as you said it's a heartwarming story that goes along with it and to your point too i want to emphasize you know ozark wood minnesota wood even you know washington state wood wherever you get the oak, you can find good oak for these barrels or another wood if you're being adventurous, but chances are you're going to be using oak. What about the Appalachian or Appalachian? Sorry, which one do you say? I say Appalachian, but okay. I don't know if I'm right. I think it's very dependent on where you are on that one. So yeah, yeah. Um, but so what about the, uh, let's say the Appalachian oak um, versus the Minnesota oak uh, was different for you. Like, did, did you taste the difference? Was there, did it go towards those leak rates you were talking about? So, no, we, we, I mean, the, the, the difference between, you know, the kind of the Kentucky, Missouri, Midwest, ISC, Calvin barrels and, and, um, and um, the West Virginia barrels was negligible. They, they, all of them produce great whiskey. Um, you know, I think we did notice a little bit of a difference in kind of maybe some Minnesota barrels. You know, it's a colder climate. The, um, you know, the, the rings are a little tighter. Um, I, I, I don't think there was the kind of the oak extraction um, in, in those northern barrels that we get 
from a little bit more southern oak. Um, you know, David, we we like the we like the localness. You know, we like telling people that we buy our grains from Pennsylvania. Uh, we buy our barrels that contain Pennsylvania wood. You know, it, I hate to say it's a marketing um, decision um, because you know they all make great barrels, but you know, in the end, we we did really like the fact that we could tell people that that these barrels are made with Appalachian wood. I I think that's completely fair. And I'm thinking to when I was talking with Chris Fredrickson of Traverse City and he said he doesn't do local just for the sake of being local. But basically, if it presents itself as an opportunity, then of course it makes sense. Yes, so, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I look at Westland too with they're finding the Gariana oak because they can't harvest it unless it's already right. fallen. Right. Um, personally, I don't. I don't really like the Gary on flavor, but um, the the point remains that it's a local thing that is unique. And to your point earlier, it sets you apart. Yeah. So, um, I got to look more into the kind of if you're getting different oak on the other side of of the mountains, you know, if because mm -hmm. they're. I was talking recently. I'm thinking of um, Doc Swinson's, and we were talking about their French oak and their french toasted bourbon and these brand new french oak and we got into a whole discussion about the um the fineness of the grain the tightness of the of the rings and all of that so who knows maybe it's as you said northern oak versus southern oak versus east to west of the mountains um but that's for that's for another day those are for other studies yeah. to to dive into but these are the nerdiness things that fascinate me the most so. yeah yeah what can i say um so yeah so to so to your point you're focusing when you can as much as you can on on the local aspect correct of what you're doing and i think nothing right now may be hotter in the local aspect than those rye grains and which leads into uh some experimentation with rosin that you got to do Right. And so Rosen should be a well-known topic on this podcast by now. I've had a couple of guests who were using it or thinking of using it, talking about it. But um, for you, uh, recount for us, how did the opportunity to use Rosen come about? So um, you've got to be familiar with Laura Fields, right? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. So so Laura and, and Seed Spark, you know, they kind of spearheaded... Um, the um you know basically the 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 re uh, you know um the resurgence of of rosen rye um brought it from several ounces from a seed bank to you know over the course of several growing seasons to the to the to the point where they had enough to basically run a distillation and um you know she got that idea from talking uh to dick stoll uh, from Stolen Wolf. And, you know, Mr. Stoll was the, I guess, the last distiller to ever use Rosen Rye when he was the master distiller of Michter's. And so, you know, there, there was no more fitting person in the world to do the first distillation of this revised or this, you know, this new um, crop of Rosen Rye than, than Stolen Wolf. And so they rightfully um, distilled the first batch of rosin um 
the next year for the next harvest, they had grown the harvest a little bit more. And, um, you know, we were familiar with Lara. Lara knew um, kind of what we were doing. She liked, you know, how we how we distilled. Um, she she felt confident that we wouldn't take this valuable rosin and, you know, and, and not do it justice. So, you know, she reached out to us in that second distillation season and said, would you guys, you know, be interested in 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 taking a, a shot at Rose and Ryan, you know, from her perspective, um, Stolen Wolf was going to do another batch, um, but she wanted to see kind of the effect of, you know, different mash bills, uh, different distillation styles, right? Stolen Wolf is a column. Uh, we are mm -hmm. a pure pot still. So she was really interested in seeing kind of how Rosen plays across a couple different dimensions. And so we distilled our first batch of Rosen rye, uh, I think about two and a half years now. So, you know, we, we now have a, a, you know, a straight Rosen rye. Um, I, I actually sent Laura a sample um, about a month or two ago. Um, haven't heard back from her yet. So I hope that means she doesn't like it. Um, we loved it. Um, it. It's David, it's, it's fantastic. Um, we, we then distilled another, so that was that, that first batch that we did, we only had enough to fill one fermenter. So we, we only were able to, to do one barrel. So we have one barrel of two and a half year old, uh, Rosen rye at this point, the next year we, we had enough to, to fill all three of our fermenters. So we did a full week's production on that. And we have five barrels of, um, you know, a little over a year rose and rye so that's something that you know we we, we hope to keep going um i don't know if there's enough rose and rye out there that we can make it our you know core rye but you know to be able to do a couple batches a year is something that that we're we love we're all about it we love that we love the story we love the flavor profile so so we're excited um we're not sure it's it's really good right now. Young rye, um, young rye is is actually, you know, very good. This two and a half year old rosin rye would, I could put it in a bottle tomorrow and and be just very very proud of of what's in that bottle. Um, you know, we're not sure if we're gonna, you know, try to to hold it to a, a bottled and bond. You know, we may release it next year as a three year old, knowing that we've got five barrels you know, behind it that, that we can hold off on a barrel or two to, you know, to get some older uh, age on it. But, but I will tell you, it's, you know, it, it is, um, it is what it's uh, cracked up to be. It's, it's a delicious rye. It, it's, it's very, you know, the thing that, the thing that jumps out to me the most is just the, the nose, um, the bouquet on it. Um, it is just so floral. Um, it, it just has this beautiful nose to it. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I've um, I've also not tried your Rosen Rye yet. I look forward to the day when I can. But I have gotten to try Stolen Wolf, and um, I also got to try some of the Rosen off the still. You know, fresh 131 proof, uh, <laughs> nice, nice nostril uh, nostril cleaner. But um, it did taste quite different. Still recognizably mm -hmm. a rye, but just so uniquely oily and, and spicy and um similarly gotten to try mammoth from mm -hmm. uh, from michigan also different 
it's still Rosen, but it's it's and it's still arrived, but it's also different from there. Uh, so I really look forward to kind of adding your guys' Rosen to to the tasting palette to see what it's like. And I we still have some of the white dog off the still, so I'll um maybe I'll throw a a, a little sample bottle your way here before too long, so you can taste taste a pot distilled uh, white dog Rosen. That'd be fantastic. And I, so that makes me ask because of course there's friendly competition between you guys, between you and stolen wolf and anyone using Rosen, but in some ways, just because of the fact you're using a pot still, it would have been more common style to use in Pennsylvania before the column came around is there any kind of discussion or has there been a discussion about uh, what's a more kind of authentic, if you will, expression of the Rosen? Um, and that's not no, to get you not in trouble, so you can pass it off if you want. Yeah, <laughs> I, not that I'm aware of. I, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I would I would say that, that and, and Laura will correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, I would say that probably the most authentic um, still that that was big with Rosen would, was probably a three chamber still. I think that, you know, the use of the pot still um, kind of predates Rosen. Rosen was introduced a little bit after right. the colonial period that we tend to, to honor. Um, you know, that pre-prohibition period in Pennsylvania rye was, you know, was kind of dominated by three chamber stills uh, that, you know, that Todd Leopold has running in, um, in Colorado. But I, I think, a, I think a pot still is a little bit more, um, leaning towards a three chamber than, than maybe a column still is. It sounds like we're going to need to get some, when we grow a little more rose and we're going to need to get some over to Todd and have him run it through the three chamber. I, I, I've, I've heard a podcast with maybe him and Laura that, that he's very interested in getting it. So, that would be, I'd love to taste it. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So just, you know, last couple of minutes, I want to talk about what, what's the future hold for, for Liberty Pole. You know, we're, we're, um, we're a little bit unique. Um, I think in that we've been very focused on, you know, growing, but growing, hyper local i mean we're, we're not we're not distributed um outside of pennsylvania we you know we've not been interested in kind of any sort of you know external uh distributor model uh to, to other states pennsylvania is a big state um you know there's a lot of opportunity in, in the state stores in pennsylvania um you know our our focus has always been on our on our um you know, kind of our, our distilling process, which, you know, we're, we're kind of proud that we've done everything, you know, without using kind of the usual consultants, you know, there's a lot of, and, and these consultants are great, um, that, that have, you know, done a lot of work across the United States, helping distillers get started. Um, we've not used any, you know, any outside consultants, everything we do has been developed in-house um, and, and we're really proud of that. And, and we think that our whiskey kind of reflects that that we're not using 
similar processes to, to other people. Um, you know, and, and, and we're really trying to win our backyard. Um, uh, we're, we're really focusing on Western Pennsylvania. We're in the middle of building a um, kind of a new campus about four miles away from our current location. Um, and, and we're hoping to open in June or July, but we're going to have a, you know, uh, a really nice uh, facility. We're going to have a, 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 a barrel warehouse where we're bringing in uh, Busick Construction, who does most of the barrel Rickhouse construction in Kentucky. They're going to build uh, ricks for us in our, in our warehouse. We're going to have a a warehouse that'll have five levels of ricks, three barrels per level, uh, 3,600 barrels, you know, which for us capacity, that's a lot. We're going to have a, uh, a big production facility compared to our current place. We're going to bring over Big Harold. Um, he will be our, our spirit still. He'll still be our finishing still. We're, we're, we're getting a thousand gallon pot still from Vendome to be our stripping still. Uh, we're going to have a, you know, kind of a colonial theme tasting room because, you know, we're, we're really big on, on the experiential nature of what we do. Um, you know, we try to really, you know, our motto is to give people the best whiskey experience, you know, possible. And, and so, you know, from the, you know, from the second that people walk into the colonial theme tasting room, I mean, you know, the fit and finish and the attention to detail that we try to put into our, you know, our tasting room, we do the same thing with our whiskeys. And um, so, so our, our, our immediate future is, you know, expanding in place, you know, expanding here regionally in, in Western Pennsylvania, um, a bigger tasting room that we hope will be an attraction for people that may not have, you know, a full weekend to travel, you know, to drive eight miles to Louisville, they can, you know, they can see a fully integrated distillery in, in Washington, Pennsylvania. Uh, so, yeah, you know, eventually, you know, with the increased production in our, in our new place, you know, we, we do anticipate trying to expand into a couple regional markets. I mean, you know, I, I, I never envision us being, you know, in 50 states. Um, you know, I, I want to get into markets that we can visit and support and help sell because I know that, you know, that distribution model you know, the distributors aren't going to sell your product, you have to sell your product. So, you know, so we want to get into markets where, you know, we can, we can help, we can get to New York and Ohio and, and West Virginia much easier than we get to California and Nevada. Sure. And I was thinking when, uh, if and when you expand to New York, you're going to have to have your kickoff at uh, Francis Tavern downtown. So it might now that I think about it, now that I say it out loud, it might be a little sacrilegious in a way, but I think it it would still work beautifully. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you know Francis Tavern? I don't. I don't. So it's it's the oldest uh, operating bar in New York. Wow, it's from 1754, I want to say. Oh, oh, it's perfect. And for a period, it was the headquarters of Washington's army. Um. After, I think in the you know in the very earliest parts of the war, and then also after the war, because mostly Revolutionary War, New York was held by the British. But it was where he finally disbanded the troops was from Francis Tavern, and they've got these you know the whole thing is set up as kind of an eating house and museum, and uh, very close to the water. 
and you yeah, got these that, long wooden tables. It, it fits perfectly. That you sounds per- that's absolutely perfect. So when next time you find yourself in New York, well, I'll bring you down there. They have a great whiskey selection because of course they do. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll share a dram there. I would love it. Would love it. All right. Sounds wonderful. So, you know, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really glad we got to do this. Talk about Liberty Pole Spirits, about peating American whiskeys, about Harold and Big Harold and all the different things going on. Uh, look very much to very much forward to, to trying what you've got now and what you've got coming out in the future. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, for the episode show notes, be sure to look for links to the website, to any kind of social media, to where you can buy Liberty Pole Spirits, where you can visit them. And I'll update that also, you know, once your new campus opens, I'll update that with some more information. And in the meantime, thanks again for coming on. Thanks everyone for listening. And it's been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Thank you, David. Pleasure.